0: Hey, it's Andrew, the Director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature Zadie Smith in conversation with New Yorker staff writer, Harule Sagal. Smith is one of the preeminent fiction writers of our age. She burst out of the stage in the year 2000 with her debut novel, written while she was still in college, Called White Teeth. It was a huge bestseller on both sides of the Atlantic and signaled a bold new talent had entered the literary world. Since then, she has published six novels, two collections of stories, and three collections of essays, in addition to dozens of book reviews and pieces of criticism in some of the most influential publications in the world, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The London Review of Books. She has become an important public intellectual and a voice for a generation came of age around the turn of the millennium. What is special about this episode is Smith does relatively few public appearances. The last time she was on our stage was more than 20 years ago. The occasion for joining us this fall was the publication of The Fraud. Her new book, A Historical Novel, is particularly notable as it is a big departure from her previous work, which has primarily been preoccupied by contemporary life. The conversation you are about to hear is remarkable for Sagal's breadth of knowledge of Smith's work and for how this brings out a very broad conversation about the power of novels to humanize and complicate both the small ethical dilemmas we face every day and the big existential issues of our time. Smith also talks about how she was inspired to take on her first work of historical fiction in part because of the ways she feels that history can often be too easily simplified or, quote, flattened by what she calls the narcissism of the present. And just like in her novels, Smith is very, very funny. Our episode opens with a brief reading from the fraud. Here's Smith.
1: Um, It's incredible to be here. It's such a beautiful place. This is not going to be Indiana Jones with a soundtrack. This is literally going to be a person reading from a book. Just, Just in case you were worried. It's just one chapter. The chapters are quite short in this book. It's about five minutes. This is a moment in which Eliza Touche, who's a Scottish abolitionist who's been watching a trial for a long time, meets one of the witnesses in that trial, Andrew Bogle, who's a previously enslaved guy from Jamaica, and Andrew's son, Henry, who's a mixed-race boy of about 16 years old, who's also been in the courtroom. This is the first time they meet. She had imagined this encounter, pictured herself accosting father and son, just like this outside the court, and then the walk down Great George Street to a chop house, the corner table by the window, even what she would say as the arthritic Mr. Bogle slowly took his seat. But nowhere in these mental projections had she imagined being asked to explain herself. No more than she expected the figures in her dreams to stop what they were doing and ask their sleeping author why they flew in a hot air balloon or visited China or dined with the Queen. It's surely not a difficult question, Mrs. Touche. Mrs. Touche. My father has had a very long and trying day. I consider it my duty to protect him from any further exertions. I'll ask again, what is it that you want with my father? He did not say my father he had no hint of that caribbean lilt she had expected and heard at various lecterns over the years and for a moment this threw her and nor was this young master bogle like those musical voices of memory pleading his case on the contrary it was eliza who now found herself pleading well i i only wish to speak with him but perhaps he might answer for himself mr bogle The elder Bogle put out a steady hand to still his excitable son. Madam, I have spoken. I have spoken and I have not been believed. I think I have now finished speaking. Sir Roger is ruined and if he is ruined, how much more ruined am I? No, now I will go home. Come, Henry. But Mr. Bogle, I believe you. And saying it aloud, she realized it was true. He looked at her narrowly. He'd been holding his top hat in his hands. Now he sighed and put it back on his head. Well, it is of no consequence now. On the contrary, Mr. Bogle, there is to be a criminal case in which no doubt your testimony will prove consequential, particularly given that the public interest in your situation is at present so lively. Henry frowned. You are a journalist, then? I... well, no... I am a writer, improvised Mrs. Touche, color flooding her cheeks. She had hoped not to stumble into a direct lie. But something about the shrewd, dissecting gaze of this son pushed her onwards. I mean, that is to say, I write occasional pieces for a periodical, Bentleys. And I feel certain our readers would be very curious to hear more of your father's story. I see. And what would it pay? Hey, I'm sorry, I don't understand Mrs. Touchet. with all due respect if my father has something that is of value to you then it is only fair that he should be paid for his trouble we've been told that these London papers sell twice as fast on the days when my father's testimony appears and yet so far we've seen no advantage from it whatsoever Mrs. Touchet struggled to hide her disappointment at this open display of venality She clutched her bag a little tighter in her hands. Mr. Bogle, I'm afraid I cannot pay for interviews. As far as I'm aware, it's not common practice. A private look now passed between the Bogle's that she did her best to read. Offence, hunger, pride. But if there is some other way in which I might be of assistance, perhaps, well, I wonder whether you and your father might not join me for a good hot meal. You must be in need of sustenance after such a long and trying day. Had she gone too far? She could see with what defensive care the son was dressed, kept his gloved fingers tucked into his palm to hide the holes, wore a stopped brass pocket watch in his threadbare waistcoat. His shoes were of the kind found in the pawn shops, serially resold and in three different shades of brown leather perhaps he was 16. The two of them stepped back from her for a moment and consulted and it seemed Henry's counsel would win out. But then the father put a hand to his son's wrist once more and stepped forward. I will come. My son will walk with us as far as Regent Street. He must go to Sir Roger. He will be needed there. But I will come with you and eat. That's it. Thank you. Um.
2: Hi, I'm Paro.
1: Hey. I need tissue so I have a bit of a cold. <laughs>
2: hmm. Okay. Hey. Hi, Zadie Smith. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm so honored to be here with you. Uh, your novel gave me an indecent amount of pleasure. I'm and, good. And uh, I'm hoping we can start uh, at the beginning, page one. Yes. Right? So this, this novel begins on the doorstep of a writer, a real writer, William Ainsworth. Right. Perhaps happily forgotten. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. <laughs> and his house is caving in. Right. Not metaphorically, it's literally caving in under the weight of his own books, allowing a character to make a remark sort of like such are the strains right. of a life
1: dedicated to literature. And that's true. That's what happened to his ceiling. It that fell in happen. Yeah, yeah. Too many books, yeah.
2: It's, it's a great opening scene. It's, it's funny, it's suggestive, and the real marvel of it is that you've written a book about, among other things, so many different kinds of, of weight. The weight of literature, the weight of the past, the weight of making it as a writer, the weight of not. Right. But this book itself doesn't collapse. It feels light. And if you've read Zadie Smith's books... This book is written in a way that feels entirely different. You have 200 chapters, some a paragraph, some a page. Right. And I wanted to start by talking about the form which feels like it is saying something important and interesting, and how you sort of came to, how you came to
1: it. I mean, that might be the '90s kid in me that I, I wanted to write a deconstructed Victorian novel. That was always the idea. I wanted it to be light as a feather. It didn't end up that way. Like, I always have a dream of, you know, 60,000 words and blah, 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 blah. But it's 100,000 words, but it it does look longer than it is because the chapters are actually very short, and it's much shorter than White Teeth or anything like that. So I wanted it to have this um, kind of sense of a confection. And I think part of it was knowing something about England, a country I grew up in, they're so attached to their sense of humor, right? And one of the problems we're talking about injustice in England is that it's not funny. And the moment you start talking about it, there's a kind of English mentality which shuts down like, oh, you've, you've become self-serious and you're, you're dragging, it's a shame, because we were having a nice time and now you've dragged it down <laughs> into this this misery of speaking, so I, I'm very aware of that in, in the English mentality and also in the English tradition. You know, in the novel itself, and so I thought would it wouldn't be possible to write a novel which, to all intents and purposes, appeared to be in good humour, until it really wasn't. That was basically the <laughs> that was basically the idea.
2: I mean, it's a historical novel, but it's also a novel that, at least it seems to me, you know, set me straight. If not, it's not as interested in transporting the reader into the past saying you know hear the sounds smell the smells right as it's interested in doing something with the past and helping us understand how we configure and think of the past where we place the past what we do with the past what the past is doing with us a little bit is that right yeah absolutely it
1: just kind of came out of this frustration building for Eight years, maybe longer, of listening to people speak about the past in ways that I found so flat and so incredibly banal, and and also a shame because there's so much that you can use, you know, in terms of like political utility. There's so much to learn, so I just started thinking. It, partly, it was kind of the schizophrenia of talking to people who would say both, look, the past is another country. Of you know terribly backward people who weren't as progressive as we. We are the most progressive generation they've ever lived. And in the same breast they uh, and the world is the burning trash fire. So I'd be like, well, wh- which is it? Is this the greatest time ever to be alive, or are we living in a burning trash fire? And that, that kind of um, double consciousness really reminded me of the Victorians too, who also felt that they were you know, absolutely at the cutting edge. Of modernity, and were also aware that they were living on top of monstrosity and horror. So, that analogy kind of interested me, um, and I just—I think I just wanted to rescue the past from that, from that flatness, and from that kind of narcissism of the present, assuming that what's behind us is only ignorance and blindness. And I think that that's
2: one of the things that you do very lightly in this book. I mean, when I think about all of your novels, your fiction and your non-fiction, actually both, I, I think of you orbiting these questions of freedom. And this is a book about freedom and unfreedom, and it's a book about slavery and imperialism. But your books are also very much about how we scuttle our own chances at freedom, right. how sometimes we don't need anybody to do the work for us. Right. And I think that there are, in this book, in social arrangements, in psychology pulsing kinds of freedom that we would not have identified as such in the past. Right. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and what it's like to sort of find those moments that... And, and maybe that they, it's a kind of freedom because it's, it's before we've named and contained certain...
1: I mean, that's true, but it's a contradictory thing. Like the famous case in England is, you know, as homosexuality is being legislated against in the Victorian period, lesbianism is left free because Queen Victoria can't imagine the existence of such a person. So that's, that's a classic example of where language is both necessary, because if you, if you don't have an identifying label, you can't pursue your rights as a collective group. At other times, when such a group has been legislated against, it's exactly not being Uh, not having a language which allows you a certain amount of freedom, like they were free penally, where where gay men were not free penally, You were faced with jail. So that's an interesting example of that double-edged sword of, of needing this thing for bargaining rights and also the kind of capture that language creates, where it takes an incredible complexity of experience and flattens it into a single term that can then be entered into the legal system. So both things are true, but it was just interesting to me like even reading william 's novels, which are full of what we would call with our superior knowledge s and m but he would never have you know conceptualized it that way, but his, not every page is, is full of this you know s and m sex, which is so amusing that he didn 't have a term for it but i don 't know if I, I feel myself at an enormous advantage being able to kind of name these preoccupations of his, but it was always interesting looking back at these moments of um, non-identification that allow some freedoms that uh, I think are kind of exotic to me, um, and other times are, render people invisible. Like for Mrs. Touche, she really needs a language of women's rights, you know, otherwise she can't apply for her rights. But then there are other cases, like in, in the novel, there's, a, all these things are true, but um, in the middle of the Civil War here, there was a Lincoln blockade on cotton, but the Confederates were doing so well that they were trying to sell cotton back to England. So in Manchester, the people of Manchester refused it. The working-class people of Manchester, whereas in Liverpool they accepted it. So I thought a lot about things like that. Like that's an extraordinary act of solidarity. Like an, an analogy is being made by poor labouring people and people in enforced labour. There is some connection. We're both like living under the system of capital. And that's a case of like progress, progressiveness in Victorian period that I miss. You know. That's solidarity. We use words like allyship, which to me is a completely apolitical word. Allyship means it's got this kind of instrumentalization in it, right? Like you who have more than me will be my ally. Solidarity means we both realise we're living under the same system of capital. We have made a political analogy. We may not be exactly the same, but we're working against something, not this kind of almost careerist... Instrumentality. So there's many things about the Victorians which fascinate me, like their politics is uh, um, broad, working class based, active, and able to make analogies which aren't perfect, but actually function. I want to stay here
2: because there's a way in this book that I think every character almost is a, is a real person. And I was mentioning this quote to you when we were speaking earlier that I love. It's from your novel, N.W., um, and you say, Nothing survives its telling. And there's so much here that comes from life, real people, things that have to be handled carefully, sensitively, uh, people that can so easily be flattened, made symbols of nobility, made symbols of just their objection. Tell me a few of the things that felt very important to you to get right.
1: Probably the most important was Andrew Bogle, the previously enslaved man, the scenes on the Hope Plantation, just because I was aware of having more information on that topic than perhaps we've ever had. I mean, it's always been existent, but it, a lot of it has been digitised so that you don't have to be an incredible scholar to find a record of every single person on every plantation in Jamaica, everything they did, uh, their children. So it, it really is an extraordinary resource. And then these amazing historians like David Olusoga in, in Britain and Gretchen Gassina writing these books about... Black Britain and the history of black people in Britain. So I was not short of facts, but I, I realized as I was writing it, the temptation is again about the narcissism of the present. The temptation is to tidy up even oppression into a version that pleases a contemporary audience. It's oppression as they imagine it to be. Um, and so what I really had to do was kind of get out of the way and uh, not add anything. That, that was my main feeling. Like, I guess I'm not of the opinion when you're writing about the abyss, which I think is what you would call a concentration camp, a Russian lager or a plantation, that that kind of situation requires italics or exclamation marks or much rhetoric on your part. I mean, that, to me, that's all kind of obscene. Uh, so you just need to uh, state as, as simply as you can what occurred. And also, Keely, from the perspective of People who are actually in it. So, a lot of that was really interesting. Like in the edit, realizing that because people's idea of the past again is quite flat, and to be honest, is often very American, just because you own the movies, you own the culture, and so we get your stuff. It was really hard to explain sometimes to editors, like here's an example, like Andrew Bogle gives testimony in court for almost three years in 1873, so I'd have young editors saying, I don't understand, why is a black man in court giving testimony? I'm like, well, I know what to tell you. There, there were no racialized laws in England in 1873, so he's in court, and that's what he's doing. And, or things like the Times describing him as the man of color, Andrew Bogle, and you get an editor saying, nobody said man of color in 1873, and I was like, again, I don't know what to tell you. That is what it says in the newspaper. <laughs> so. It, it was those kind of things which were interesting, because they kind of threw people as they read them. But I was just really determined to uh, present the history as it stands.
2: In the history as it stands, but there's also, I mean, it's like the title of your book, Feel Free, there is the injunction, the imperative to imagine. And the person leading us through this book, I mean... Once again, I think in this book, you've, you've created this great clamorous cast. I'm very curious about who steps forward and says to you, we're going to see this through my eyes, right? And so we yeah. see this through Eliza Touche, Mrs. Touche, as you very yeah. decorously call her. And why, why did she become the person who could tell us Believe me, that story? was
1: not the intention. I spent like 10 years researching a book about a, a ridiculous novelist called um, Ainsworth and um, Andrew Bogle and the way their lives intersected. And that was my only intention. If I thought about Mrs. Touche at all, I thought, you know, it's odd that she appears in the letters sometimes and Charles Dickens will say things like, I'm coming to dinner, but is she gonna be there? I'm like, what does that mean? Or, you know, Thackeray would be like, oh God, is Mrs. Touche coming? And she's always a bit severe or, so I was just interested in why all these grown novelists were so terrified of a housekeeper. <laughs> um, so I did. I mean, it amused me when I was researching it, but I still didn't think much of it, you know. Then, when I started writing, she opens the door to this uh, boy who's come to fix the hole in the roof, and um, I remember writing the first page and thinking oh, it was quite amusing her tone. And then I was on the second page, third page she was still there. I was like, this is odd. And then realizing that it was basically a close third person, like it was she was telling the story. It was a a surprising intervention (laughs) from a dead person.
2: (laughs) It was the tone, the severity. What was it?
1: I think when I got to the third page, I realised I I love William. I think he's very kind and sweet and fundamentally untalented and ridiculous. But I'm not that interested in him. I realised I wasn't that interested in him as a person. He's quite a simple personality, full of traits that I, I envy. You know, the ability to be not... Jealous, the ability to be kind even to people who were lording it over you, He's the ability joyed. to deal with your own mediocrity. He's amazing at that. Um, <laughs> but I just, I just, um, he, he didn't, he 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 didn't interest me. After all those years of reading about him, I realised I couldn't write a novel through his eyes. Yeah. Do you still start with the first line and end with the last line? No, I actually I wrote the last chapter first as a kind of. Um, mini challenge to see if I could get there. I knew he was going to die in the last pages, and I just wanted to kind of keep going forward. Um, And I don't, I'm not self-conscious about first lines. Maybe when you're young, you worry about writing great first lines, and now I don't bother with that nonsense.
2: I I kept a running list of, uh, I mean, people have described this book as one of your funniest, and I would agree, and I kept a, a running list of insults uh, about novel writing and novelists. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's it's great. The tragic indulgence, the useless vanity, the blindness, um, and it's and, and I mean and you're 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 so funny when it comes to William, who as you describe was satisfied by every line. You know, every line he just relished that he wrote. When I think about your work, I I wouldn't say that I think that you're attracted to difficulty, but I get the feeling sometimes with your novels that there's almost like a there's some kind of constraint or private challenge or, or or something going on that we sometimes are privy to and sometimes are not. But we can I see <laughs> s- such variety in in the books, you know, in the novels, almost like distinct periods. And I wonder, is that something one sets out t- to do? I do mean- you need to have something to, to, to make to feel as if you're making something new? When you sit down I, I think
1: when I was in New York, I was talking to Hua Xu, who's another 90s kid like me. And um, I think it's, it's a, something from the 90s. So the artists that we were obsessed with as kids, or at least dominated us, people like Prince, people like Madonna, the whole principle was transformation. That Every time you entered into the arena, you came as a different persona. It was quite the opposite of what happens now when the idea of personal authenticity is... Number one, it was, it was something else. The idea was change. And even the novelists of the period, like people like Foster Wallace that I've written about, now we have these short story collections which are like artfully linked short stories which are all in one place. But the idea then was kind of mastery, like I'm going to show you 15 different things. That's a very 90s conception, I think. And the other thing that I think is a hangover from that is the fact that we all watch so much television, the way you you guys are on the internet we were on television, like nine, ten hours a day, every single day for your entire childhood and I think the writers who came out of it came out with a deep suspicion about the way time is treated in television the way chronology works, the way narrative works and when I think of my cohort and around me uh, like people like George Saunders it's always about trying to get out from under the that neat idea of, this is what a life feels like. There's a beginning, a middle and an end. There's jokes, it's a sitcom basically. You're the hero. Um, that, that to me is just, uh, I feel dead under that format. And so I, I know when people read me, they're like, why can't you just tell the story in a straight line? What's wrong with you? Um, but, but, I, but I object to the idea that that's how people experience their lives. I just don't believe it. I don't think that's how they experience their lives.
2: Even so, I think that with this book in particular, there's an ease to the sentences. There's something. Yeah, it, it, it was a, jo- it, a joy to radiating write. off of it that I. It made me very curious about the actual conditions of of, of writing it. Can you? I mean, I I know that you were circling uh, this yeah, story. Yeah, I didn't for a have years, any
1: but... um, agonisties. I didn't. I was just in love with novels and what they can do, and I felt. Maybe it's a condition of being in your forties that you can, you can just do things more. You, you, you've got a certain amount of skill after a while that certain things aren't a struggle anymore. I think the tragic thing about novel writing is the moment that moment comes, you immediately stop understanding anything about contemporary life. So it's like what a waste of time, <laughs> forty years and then oh okay. Um, but maybe there's a sweet spot right in the middle, and I, I felt myself to be in it. I just really enjoyed, I really enjoyed writing it. And I was writing it as a, on a kind of subscription model, little section sending it forward, forward, forward. And um, there was no time to be self-conscious. You know, you're know, you telling a real story, everything really happened, and everything was in the service of the story, and nothing was about me. And I found that such so, an incredible relief.
2: Say a little bit more about when you say you're in love with the novel and what the novel can do. What is that for you right now? I don't presume it's the same thing, or is it the
1: same thing as what a novel could do for you in your early 20s? I couldn't imagine another form in which I could say and think all the things I said and thought in this book. To write in an essay would be to make a series of arguments about the fraudulent relationship between England and Jamaica. And I I could do that. And I, I did, in the middle of this, for my friend Gretchen, who wrote this wonderful book, Black England... I wrote an essay as an introduction to her, a new edition of Black England, and I realized writing it that basically it was a novel in argue, argued form, pretty much. It's about the idea that in order to change enormous systems of racialized capital, you need all kinds of hands on deck, not just radicals like Henry, not just the slaves themselves revolting every year, but a huge group of people in solidarity one way or another. So I could have told it that way, but but that's a kind of resolved argument and when I was writing the novel like there's a scene towards the end where Henry who was this really kind of heroic maybe the only heroic person in the book a kind of uh, a person with strong beliefs who is trying to change the world argues with Mrs Touchet about how to change the world basically they're arguing from two different positions and when I sat down to write it I really for the first time I think ever in my writing life thought ooh what's going to happen here like, I was genuinely interested. Like, who's going to win this argument? The Catholic abolitionist, kind of semi socialist, or the boy who says, forget your political proceeds, revolution now? Like, what, what is going to happen between these two? And I don't think that can happen in an essay that kind of freedom of um, discussion between two, two parts of your brain or two, two ideas.
2: But how do they inform each other? The novel writing brain, self perceiving being, and the essay writing more. But even your essays, you don't write your essays to persuade. I would actually disagree no, no, with I, you there. No, no,
1: I, I mean, I try, I do, my you main argue, principle is, you know, I don't, I don't really care what you think. I'm just, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to encourage you how to, how to think. It's just an example of how to think. You can end up wherever you're you know, I have at least that Christian perspective that your views are, are, you know, they're in your soul. That's not for me to interfere with. That's on your conscience and your head. But I'm asking you how you think. That's what matters to me. So when I'm, when I'm writing, I'm just trying to model an example of what I think argumentation or thinking can look like. Whether you end up on that side, you know, of one political flavor or the other is, is not my business. That's your business. I'm just thinking about what thought looks like.
2: So, how does it work together,
1: or do they work together? I mean, I think the process of being of writing for the kind of American publications we've both written for, usually in nonfiction, just makes you a much better writer in general. Like, I really want to give credit to those those magazines, you know, New York Times, New Yorker, New York Review of Books, and In England, we have a different tradition, which is Grub Street. You know, it's like, I would like you to write a thousand words on something tomorrow, and you're like, okay. Whereas in New York, it's three months of writing something which is edited and thought about and combed through. And so that process, the kind of structural process of learning to use less words more efficiently, you know, that's a really great principle. And if I hadn't come to America, I think I'd be a very different writer. But how does
2: one get better as a novelist?
1: Well, that's, that's more a, a question of like uh, uh, give, giving up, it's kind of being less, I don't know how to describe it. Like in an essay, it's a very violent act, you know, you really are kind of trying to impress your construction on somebody else's mind. For me, novels are more subconscious, you know, they're more about letting go, and um, I wrote this quite subconsciously, and that's quite embarrassing, right, because there's things, they're going to be obvious to people, because you're not trying to um, present yourself a certain way, you're just kind of in a flow state or whatever, so I I think novels are a bit embarrassing in that way, because the more of them you write, your preoccupations, your obsessions, your tics, your flaws, all are laid out for everyone to see, like, you know, in when Philip Roth finishes you know, 20 books, someone says, oh, I think you're a misogynist. And he's like, yeah, well done. Yes, I, yes, that's <laughs> correct. But you think he doesn't know that? He, know, he knew that. Um, so these, these things are em- embarrassing. But, but they're also, you know, I love Philip's work. I love the energy. And of course, I understand his blind spots, but he knew them too, you know, and they become more and more revealed the longer you go. I mean, the way you
2: describe it, it it, you know, writing fiction seems so much more vulnerable than writing criticism, which can feel. I mean, even the kind of criticism you write, it can feel more. um,
1: Yeah, I feel very defended. defended, Yeah, when I'm writing criticism, I don't. Fiction is completely vulnerable, and um, particularly if you're very, very attached to the idea of uh, what does this novel say about me, it'd be very hard to write under that condition. I think.
2: But I'm trying to think about. I mean, I think one of the things. That is so remarkable about your essays and your nonfiction writing is that they don't conflate, as you were saying, knowledge and thinking. This, they seem to be different things sometimes. You know, and you want to show thinking as active, you change your mind, you are interested in active ambivalence. And I'm trying to think about the kind of thinking that novels can do, because I don't think it's just a matter, right, that the novel can be. It's that it's just big enough or copious enough or that there can be artifice. I think I, I keep feeling that there is a different kind of attention
1: or a different kind of pressure. A novel is also putting on thought. Yeah. I, things can be bracketed. You can contain more than one idea simultaneously, which I don't think of as ambivalence. I think that's like necessary for an adult ethical life and an adult political life. One of the things I think you really notice as you get older, or I've noticed, that when I was young... It seemed, I don't know if anybody else felt this way or if they do now that they are young. I just thought, it's so easy to be good. What's the big deal? What, what the f*** are you all stressing about? It seems so simple. And when you're young, you realise that you, your ethical area is is so narrow, right? It really only involves you and maybe two or three friends, and it really isn't that difficult. But the moment that ethical area expands to children, partners, friends, cousins, citizens, it starts to get super complicated because, of course being good to one person might involve being bad to another. Our rights and duties are in tension, they're not in one straight line. So I think novels kind of dramatize that fact that all these things you want to do involve wins and losses for so many different people, and it's such a complicated arena. Anybody with a kid, you know, you've already committed about 50 ethical errors between 8 and 10 in the morning. It's not... (laughs) It, you can't live in, a, in this... Per- it's impossible. So it, it becomes really hard to see yourself as a person of unequal goodness. I, I think that's really hard for adults to do because it isn't true.
2: When I think about your work, I think that novels for you invariably involve the problem and the pleasure of other people. Yeah. You know? It's not... It's... It's... it's a relief, it's a a way to escape the self, it's a way to be curious, it's a way to think about those responsibilities, right? Is there something about the novel that helps that kind of thinking and feeling for you?
1: Well, I think maybe one part sometimes missing from our ethical discussions is, in fact, I saw it written about today somewhere, maybe in the Times, is moral luck. Some of the things which allow me to think of myself as a good person are literal moral luck. Unlike Andrew Bogle, I'm not um, you know, in a plantation in 1872 in the role as overseer. Now, that's moral luck. I don't have to make the kind of choices that Andrew has to make. He's trying to help his children survive. He has a role of some power within the plantation, despite being a black man, which was very common in Jamaican plantations. The idea when I was writing that, that I would judge a man for being put in a position, no more than I would judge, you know, I was reading this wonderful Primo Levi essay, The Grey Zone, about the various roles that his fellow Jews sometimes had to take in concentration camps. The idea that you would judge somebody's role in such a place is, to me, perfect evidence of this kind of moral luck. Like What Primo Levi says is such an interesting double argument, which is, he says there is a difference between people who did that and people who didn't do that, and, but the moral difference between them is for me to know and for you to shut your mouth about. That's basically what he says, you have no idea. I was there, you were not there, and you can't imagine these gradations of complicity because you've never been put under such circumstances. So that's kind of how I, when I'm thinking about other people, I'm also thinking their scenarios are almost unimaginable to me and my moral luck is obvious. To be born in 1975 in England is moral luck number one. It's almost unprecedented. You know the gazillions of people who didn't get to be born in 1975 in England, that's moral luck beyond imagining. So I I kind of begin there. Like, I haven't had to make the kind of choices or decisions that I would be forced to make in a million other scenarios throughout history.
2: Well, you begin there, and, and, and maybe it's beyond imagining, but imagine you must. So talk to us a little bit about what it means then to make characters like this in situations that do feel beyond
1: imagining come to life? Um, I mean, my, my, my brother is an actor. I've got two actor brothers now, actually. And I think the uh, process is very similar. I think if you're playing Oedipus, you're not required to have had sex with your mother and killed your father. But you, but you are required to have to know what it feels like to be immensely guilty, terrified, trapped, that's how I write. I use the emotions that I have had, which I presume most people have had, and employ them in the characters that I play or write, and that—that's just simply it. It's—it's it's exactly the same thing my brother does. I just do it with the pen. So that means also
2: when we talk about what it means to become better as a fiction writer, does experience have something to do with it?
1: What goes yeah, into that ab- toolkit? Absolutely. Like uh, there's a scene just after the one I read you where. Mrs. Touche is walking with Andrew and Henry. This is what I mean about subconscious writing, through the street. So it's a white woman, a dark-skinned black man, and a lighter-complexioned younger man. And they're causing not an enormous fuss in the street, because it wasn't such an unfamiliar sight in England in the Victorian period, but walking through the centre of town, yes, she thinks, maybe if we were in the slums, people would be... But right now, they think we're a family, and everybody's turning around to look. When I finished writing the scene, it was subconscious, but the emotions in that scene, of course, it's my family, right? Walking the streets in 1975, old white man, Jamaican woman, mixed-race kids, people turning or looking or gossiping. So that's an example of what I mean, where you use an emotion that you remember what it's like to be constantly you know, stared at and give it to a completely different people in a completely different world.
2: That openness to surprise of all kinds feels like something that is kind of pulsing and popping up in in the conversation in ways. And one of the things we started out talking about was all the ways that we get the past wrong and we flatten it and domesticate it and make it seem benighted and we are so progressive and better. I mean this is a book that must have required quite a substantial amount of research and I'm wondering about what shocked you, what surprised you, what did you
1: have wrong? I mean some of it I I knew at a bone level I just hadn't brought it to mind. Like when I look at my life in northwest London who built my public school, I mean state school in England, public school as you would say here? The Victorians. Where do I go to hospital, in a Victorian hospital? Where do I go to the park to get relief from everything? Land that the Victorians demanded should not be taken by builders and be left to the people. What is Hampstead Heath? A massive political decision to stop a lord who was determined to sell all his land to a housing developer. That was a mass movement to say, no, this land belongs to the people of England. Who established the commons? It wasn't the Tory government of today, it was the Victorians. So everything that I value in my life, every common space that I, allows my family and the people I love to exist, was built 200 years ago. In England, we are literally living in the ruins of socialist Victorian thinking. So you really have to think again about what exactly is progressive. This Tory, like, insane government that is determined to privatise every last part of English life, is that progressive? Is that futuristic? To me, the Victorians looked 200 years ahead. The house I live in, 1899, everything was created by them. So that was kind of what surprised me, that I knew I was writing about a great Victorian iniquity, offshore monstrosity, Caribbean plantation slavery, and I also knew I was talking about an England which created the 1834 Reform Act and which built basically the entire country as it stands today. So that's maybe something that a novel can do: tell you two things that happen simultaneously. I, it's
2: so funny. I can't because you always call her Mrs. Touche. I was about to call her Eliza, and it felt unutterably rude. <laughs> I, I do think of you as like Mrs. Touche in one way—that you know she says that cities are in her blood—and I do think of you, you know, as, as one of our great writers about cities. You know, N. W. is the, one of the great London novels. I think of some of the stories you've written uh, about New York. You know, this book also coincided with, with your own move, you yeah. know, from after 10 years in New York back to London. And I, I wonder if, if, if some of those feelings, observations, you know, ab- about that move, about that transition, about those two twin cities in your mind are, are part of this book.
1: I mean, I, I'm not one of those like uh, naysayers of New York. I really love New York. I loved every minute I spent there. It was just complete excitement to me, day and night. But London is my home, and I think moving back to it, I did, of course, notice this thing about the commons. Like, you know, in in America, that's an incredibly hard thing to find unless it's funded by Mr. Carnegie or Mr. Rockefeller or, you know. So it's hard to find those spaces. And it was was wonderful to be back in the country, even if it's on its knees, that still has that principle. So I, I did find myself back in it with some uh, gratitude, you know, that th- these institutions, even though they're really struggling, still basically exist, and we were slotted back into them, you know, so that my children can now be bullied by the children of the people who bullied me. It's a beautiful, <laughs> it's a beautiful, circular uh, situation. It, it, it is nice, that part, and uh, it really did make me think of what I what I owed those Victorians... And I, I suppose like one of the like long-term projects of the books, even from White Teeth, is like I see no better example on Earth for the brief period it existed of this commons, particularly in the post-war variety. And its problem was always that it's, the picture it had of a human subject was white. There were, there were no space for all these other people. So part of the project has always been, that's half of a good idea. How about the rest of it? And so this was a kind of another example of trying to imagine a commons, uh, which was based on these same principles, but could include um, everybody who approached it.
2: And I've been reading you my whole adult reading life, I feel, and I I went back and I wanted to find the first interview with you I could find. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. um, Yeah. And and, uh, White Teeth had just been published and... You think you're at the center of, of so much publicity and questions and being asked to be a mouthpiece for this, that, and the other. And already in the first interview, you said to the interviewer, you know, if you, if you love a young writer, maybe you should give her a little space. Yeah. And I <laughs> you didn't get it. But I, I was so curious about
1: what does it mean to love a writer now? When... Um Sally Rooney turned up. I, I, really had like PTSD. I was like, I wanted to take that girl and like put her in cotton wool and hide her away. But, but Sally is is nails compared to what I was. Like she, she's fine and she'll be just fine. But I, I did watch it and think, oh, here we go again. Is this, is this what, is this what you do to a a, a young girl with 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 some ability that this is the idea? But she was so, she was so sensible. You know, she just took herself back to rural Ireland and. Um, carried on writing books where I was much more um, kind of battered by it I think I found it really quite hard. To your questions
2: somebody wants to know when the title The Fraud came to you and a little bit about what it means
1: in this context. I mean they always come first I never I'm always amazed when people are wondering about the titles for their books because to me it's central, but I think that's because the novels themselves, for good or for bad, are essayistic, right? So, on beauty, is it's about, and fraud, this is about lots of different kinds of fraudulence, and there are people who don't write novels in that way at all, you know, who, who are coming from ideas in that way. I love those kind of novelists, actually, and I sometimes dread the kind that I am. This was immediate, yeah, it was, it was an immediate title, and... Um, I I just loved it from the start. In your essay, Rereading Barthes and
2: Nabokov from your essay collection and Changing My Mind, you discuss the transaction of meaning between the author and reader of a text. In this novel, The Fraud, you narrate the text with your inflection and intended meaning to the listener. How different is the interpretation of the text affected for the listener by hearing the author read their work versus reading the text?
1: Um, I mean, the older I've got, I've got more and more To lay out a novel almost the way you'd lay out a room, so that when you walk into it, it is kind of up to you how you move around it. That that's maybe like something from gaming, right? Like when I talk to game designers, I love those kind of video games, and I love that idea of freedom. But it does mean it's kind of a risk. Like I've sat on stages in the past few weeks with people who read the book and never mentioned slavery in an hour, or I've read. The book with people who think it's only about slavery and they're not concerned with any other part of it. So you get the bit of the book that you're, you're interested in, right? I guess that's how it goes. But maybe when you hear someone read it, you can see where their emphasis is, I imagine. Like I just did the audiobook, but um, what you'll mainly get from that is me wearing thick dental braces, so I have a lisp throughout, slightly worse than the one I have now, and a very poor Scottish accent, so I apologise <laughs> ahead of time. Is there a particularly
2: juicy fact or historical tidbit that you wish could have made it into the fraud, and you couldn't?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, again, when you go back to the Victorians and you think that they have these stayed sex lives, that is the bit which is just so far from the truth. And some some of it went in here, but their lives are so complicated sexually, and there's so many people involved in many of these marriages, that it, it seems like too much, like George Cruikshank, who is a minor character here, he illustrated Dickens' novels and Ainsworth's novels. Uh, like somewhere in the research, I found out that he had a second family, so he was conducting two completely different families either side of the river with like 10 kids in each one. That that kind of stuff was so common. And Ainsworth certainly was going to Europe for long periods every few years, and, and they're seeing prostitutes, you know, in Italy and France, and, and I just... You know i didn 't have time for any of that, and also it seemed to me clear from i mean Ainsworth and Touche definitely had a sexual relationship, and that 's all kinds of hints in the letters. but at some point, I think he either got her pregnant or somebody pregnant because there 's a series of letters between him and Dickens' friend John Forster, him thanking John Forster for getting him out of a bit of very intimate domestic trouble and so you could follow all those things, but all of everything that 's going on now was going on then. Um, if not more so. Um, and so that some of that had to be kept out because you'd go on forever, yeah. What brings you hope lately? Um, you know, writing this book brought me a lot of hope because I could see... You know, when you think about a system like that, which well, it's both hopeful and unhopeful because it, plantation slavery for a period made the kind of money they're making in Silicon Valley now, like unprecedented money on a human scale, so fast that you couldn't print it fast enough, etc., etc. And so the optimistic thought is it is possible to end even systems that make that much money with enough revolution, political will, solidarity, parliamentary action, etc. That's the positive version, which I try and hold on to. But there is definitely another argument that those things only start working when the extractive system is on its knees. So the land was literally falling apart. The system itself, by 1830, the thing is over anyway. No one's making any money. They're in debt, in fact. And so the cynical version is those kind of political movements only work when there's not another dollar to be made. Um, And that makes me feel bleak. And, And when I think of the analogies with our friends in Palo Alto and with this climate crisis, you do wonder like, do you have to be on your knees before all these political movements actually function?
2: I feel like that might be a great rousing note. Thank you. On, thank you so much, so much for you. being here. Thank you, Zadie. Thank
1: you. Thanks. Thank you.
0: That was Zadie Smith in conversation with New Yorker staff writer, Parul Sagol from Portland Arts and Lectures in September, 2023. This has been Literary Arts, the archive project it's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to the literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time, find your story here.